Welcome back to Power Hour, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us. Caring about your world, doing the next right and honorable thing. We're so glad to have James Corbett join us today. Um, He is a regular on the Power Hour, and for a very good reason. He seems to know what's going on, not just in the financial arena, but in every arena. He really does stay up with what's happening. TheCorbettReport.com, an excellent, excellent website for you to go to. He is an independent listener-supported. He has an independent listener-supported alternative news source, and he operates on the principle of open source intelligence, provides podcast interviews, articles, and videos with breaking news. Everything from 9-11 to eugenics, police state, geopolitics, the central banking fraud, and more. We're so glad to have him join us today. Thank you so much, James, for joining us on the Power Hour today. Well, it is always my pleasure to be here on the Power Hour with you, Joyce. Thank you so much for having me on again. Well, thank you. And I know I'm going to be asking you the same question everybody is asking you about these three guys that either jumped from buildings or were suicided or whatever happened to them. And people are saying, is the, and I think even the, uh, some of the uh, major newspapers are asking, is there a collapse near? What are your thoughts about this? If you could go over kind of those deaths and who those people are, if you can, and what this means to us, the implications. Absolutely. Well, for those who don't know, yes, there have been in the past uh, week, there have been three bankers um, that have been found dead in mysterious circumstances. And the latest was apparently um, uh, a former chief economist uh, who was also an economist for the Federal Reserve named Mike Duker. And apparently he was uh, he was found dead um, in uh, on Washington State on a hi- highway at the side of a hi- highway um, and as you say falling down a forty to fifty foot embankment um, uh, his death appeared to be a suicide is the way it's being reported by Bloomberg and others um, and it's I mean it's interesting when we have these groupings of mysterious deaths uh, the others being a uh, a G- J P Morgan senior manager um, who died last Tuesday and a Deutsche Bank executive who died last Sunday. Um, not a lot of details on the Deutsche Bank executive. Um, there is a post up on zerohedge.com about the J.P. Morgan senior manager who was found dead, um, uh, jumping to his death uh, in from the London headquarters of J.P. Morgan. So it is always interesting when these these things group together. At this point, I don't think I have any basis to say that these are necessarily related or that we are necessarily seeing some sort of preview of some sort of banking collapse. Of course, it is a possibility, but I don't think we necessarily have en- enough details to go on with that, as there doesn't seem to be necessarily any relation between between these people or, or any ways that they would be connected, other than to say, just generally, they worked in the sphere of finance. And uh, and sometimes things happen in that way. So so I'm not going to go out on that limb yet. But of course, it is, it is ominous, because uh, we can just think back to the 1929 stock market crash. And of course, what was the the major meme that came out of that was the idea of bankers jumping out of windows. And uh, of course, that was one of the more humorous signs that we saw at the 2008 bailout protests on Wall Street, uh, with some people holding signs that said, jump you, um, you bad people, (laughs) using a (laughs) phrase that I can't use on the on the radio. But (laughs) yes, Uh, so so I don't know, probably a phrase that was, yeah, probably a phrase that might have been used in Iceland also. Uh, but I, I, I think that these deaths, though, especially when you look at a 34-year-old man that dies, 
um, that decides, you know, it's the worst it can get and I'm done. I'm out of here. And then you have a man who decides to commit suicide by falling down a, an embankment. Now, that's a, that's kind of a new one, I think, also. So, I mean, there there are some suspicious issues, but, I mean, there are div- divorces that happen, and there are deaths that create depression in people and all those things. But it does seem that three very stable, or one would think stable people in those positions you know, would have a little bit more resilience than to just uh, let it all go, especially without any kind of warning that perhaps they were in trouble. Well, in fact, there may have been some warning in the case of uh, Mike Duker, the former Fed economist who was found most recently. Um, apparently, according to one of his co-workers, uh, sorry, to uh, the, the county detective who was investigating the case, sorry about that, his name was Ed Troyer, and apparently, according to him, uh, Duker was having problems at work, but uh, declined to elaborate on what that actually meant. So perhaps that was work-related. Um, again, we don't have much detail on that, so I think it's something we'll have to wait and see for. But at any rate, if we do want to look at this um, more more on, on the broader scale and what it could potentially mean, I think what we are on the brink of, I think there's no doubt about it, that we are on the brink of the collapse of a bubble that has been intentionally blown. And uh, and there we've been in a lot of bubbles uh, in the last several years, but one of the, the, the largest in, in human history has been this blowing of the bond bubble since the, the Lehman collapse in 2008, where um, through the quantitative easing programs and, and all of the various iterations of that across the Bank of England and the Bank, uh, the Bank of Japan and the European Central Bank and the Federal Reserve and all of these different banks, pumping all of this liquidity into the system by buying up their own bonds. Um, As one Bank of England official admitted last year, they have deliberately blown the biggest bond bubble in history. And uh, for those who want a spoiler on that story, it doesn't end with a happy ending. So we are on the cusp of of this collapse. And uh, I think obviously the human tragedy that plays out during these collapses should not be undersold or, or underestimated. And, you know, this may be the beginning of or the thin edge of the wedge of that uh, that collapse. And and uh, I certainly don't revel in that in any way, shape or form. It's a it's a tragic thing. But I think that we're also on the, the, the cusp of another bubble collapsing. And that's the bubble of unreality that we've been living in. I think the, the bond bubble and all of these other financial bubbles are really just symptomatic of of the f- fundamental underlying principle that we are living in a time of just complete one 100% fabrication. Um, we are fed just constant lies uh, totally by the media. And just as one example of that, I mean, the uh, the Federal Reserve cut back on their, their tapering uh, last week with a, uh, another $10 billion uh, of, of tapering to the, the quantitative easing. So now they're only pumping in $65 billion a month into the uh, the economy through their, their quantitative easing program. Because apparently the, uh, the cumulative effect of uh, unemployment uh, uh, shrinking over the past year has been enough for them to say, oh, we can we can ease off the gas pedal a little bit now. So they're uh, they're now cutting back on their quantitative easing program. But that unemployment figure itself is complete total fabrication. As as we've gone through it before on this program, as I'm sure a lot of the listeners out there know, the unemployment figures are basically made up government figures, and they can tinker with those numbers any way they want. Um, because even though we are apparently at 6.7% unemployment, of course, we are now at 35-year highs of uh, or lows of labor participation. People who are actually employed in the workforce are at 35-year lows. Um, that That is a stunning statistic that is not being reflected in this in this so-called reality we're living in. And, and I think there are all sorts of examples of this unreality. 
And I think that's another type of bubble that's been blown, that just the, the incredible lies that just keep getting bigger and bigger as we move further and further along into this never-never land they're creating around us. And when that bubble bursts, well, it's, it's anyone's guess what will happen. But uh, I think we're going to see um, some, some really stunning changes um, to society and to the way that things have been going along. The status quo has been ticking along, um, the, the likes of which most people probably haven't seen in their entire lifetime. That's certainly scary. And I think we're looking at the kinds of, well, for an example, um, you know, I mean, how long can they keep saying economy is getting better, economy is getting better as everybody tanks and everybody is homeless and homes are selling for less than a dollar around the country? I mean, how long can they keep this facade going is the question, because once everybody finally says, oh, wow, we have been scammed here hugely, and there is no real money, and there is no, you know, everything is credit, and this is all a charade. Um, I mean, how much longer can this continue? Or do you think that it can be the, you know, continuing lie forever? Well, it, maybe it's the emperor wears new clothes story. And as long as everyone believes that the emperor is wearing clothes, then the fraud can continue. But as soon as the child comes along and says, hey, look, the emperor is naked, um, suddenly that, that bubble of unreality can burst and people can see what is really happening underneath the surface. And it's not difficult to see. All it takes is someone to, to point it out. And as one perfect example of that. Um, of course, yesterday we saw the, the big Super Bowl Sunday brouhaha that I managed to avoid safely living on the other side of the Pacific Ocean. Um, but uh, I did not uh, uh, avoid the very interesting thing that happened at a press conference after with one of the game's uh, MVPs, where Matthew Mills, a 30-year-old independent journalist from Brooklyn, um, took the microphone during the live press conference and said, investigate 9-11. Uh, there are members uh, within the U.S. government that perpetrated 9-11 uh, or something to that effect before he was pulled away from the microphone. Just a small little action, but one with potentially large consequences. In fact, right now, if you go on Twitter, investigate 9-11 is a hashtag that is trending in the United States right now. Enough people are actually wow. searching that term that it is actually becoming a trending term on Twitter right now. So on the back of that, I just put out a link to my 9-11 uh, conspiracy theory video that's getting a lot of retweets at the moment. So people is are standing it? up. There are children, quote unquote, who are pointing out the emperor is not wearing clothes and people are starting to see it. And I think that could be the exciting part of this bubble collapsing. It doesn't have to be a bad thing necessarily. Oh, that is so good to know. That is so good to know. And your video is one of the best. I cannot tell you how many times I have recommended for people to listen to that. You know, if you've got four minutes, you can know the truth. And uh, that is absolutely one of the best. We'll include that with the email blast again today. So, uh, Catherine, if you would do that, please. Memo to Catherine so we can get that out there again to everybody that, if you have not seen it. It is worth re-looking at because it sure, certainly tells the story of how ridiculous the belief of 9-11 is. Let me go to, um, uh, quoting in the International Forecaster, why patents and copyrights must die and how they are currently being killed. I mean, that's pretty serious. Talk to us about that story that you did uh, in the Corbett Report in the International Forecaster. Well, I kick off that, that article talking about a pretty interesting decision that was handed down last, late last year about Google Books. And uh, perhaps we can talk about that after the break, but uh, it's, it's an interesting... <laughs> Right. It's, it's an interesting uh, uh, ruling that's been made about the legality of what Google Books is doing. And I think that's that's something we need to take a look at. Absolutely. We'll be back after this four minute break with James Corbett. Stay tuned to the Power Hour. This is Joy Schreiber. 
back to Power Hour. Thank you for joining us, caring about your world, doing the next right and honorable thing. And if you go to friendsofthepowerhour.com, friendsofthepowerhour.com, no matter what country you're in, you can find out if there are like minds. What a cool idea. And Jerry Peterman did this for us. So go to friendsofthepowerhour.com. And he's got just about every country and every state up there. Click on it and find out where the like minds are in your area by email. Uh, And I think that is an amazing idea. Um, We're talking with James Corbett today. He does The Corbett Report and uh, International Forecaster. And I mentioned before the break, right at the break, about why patents and copyrights must die and how they're currently being killed. I mean, that's pretty strong language, even for you, Mr. Corbett. Well, it is, but I think it's deservedly so. And and as I was saying, I, I, this really kicks off, this, this editorial kicks off with an interesting ruling that came down last November uh, about Google Books. And for people who don't know, basically Google, as part of their mission to digitize the full, the total, uh, uh, everything that's ever been made, <laughs> basically, is what they're attempting to do. Um, as okay, part now, of- just explain that, just so everybody understands what Google Books means to even those people that are not online, so they'll, they'll know what that means. Right. So it's as part of that quest, what they're doing is they're they're basically digitizing every book that they can get their hands on. And they've been doing this since 2004. So they now have millions upon millions of books um, digitized and they are they are um, searchable on Google. Um, you can go to Google Books and you can search for a keyword or a phrase or, or a author or what have you. And you'll be able to search through all these books. And, uh, and the way that Google Books works is you can see a little bit of a preview of that book um, around that search term. So if you search for a specific term and it's in that book, you can actually see that page where it is. And in fact, with a lot of books, you can see a preview in which you can read most of the book. They, um, they take out one page every 10 pages or something of that sort. But it, it's been a pretty controversial project since the start with publishers and authors, obviously, because they didn't ask any authors or publishers their permission to do this. Um, they just started putting it up on the internet. And uh, and so that the, the publishers and authors obviously immediately sued them for copyright infringement. And this uh, court, court case has now been going on for the be- better part of 10 years. Um, a few years ago, Google managed to settle with the publishers, which meant that the authors were left kind of hanging uh, by themselves, swinging in the wind, um, as they were trying to continue pressing this case to try to get something um, out of this. And the the judge just basically ruled against the authors saying, well, actually, Google Books, although it may be being used by Google for for profit, for their own profit purposes, for advertising revenue and the like, it, it, it serves a valuable public interest. So, in fact, it is now fair use and uh, it's now deemed okay for Google to do this. So, basically, they are providing these books online for free um, for people to go and, and look at uh, with those those provisions that I talked about taking out uh, one page out of every 10 or, or what have you. Um, and and this has been ruled okay by the judge, which is an interesting decision because it shows that copyright law and patent protection and all of these laws that have been erected supposedly in the name of furthering people's intellectual property and giving in- inventors and writers and artists an incentive to create their work. There's always been a bit of r- wiggle room in those laws and there's been a little bit 
bit of ambiguity in things like fair use. Um, and that's been left in there on purpose so that judges can go in and take a look at the merits of a case and say, well, no, this person is doing it for nonprofit purposes and it's a public interest and they're, they're news reporting or what have you. So, so it's fair use. They can use that copyright material. So that, that wiggle room has always been in there. But I think the real point of this is that when you have a giant, an internet giant like Google with its billions upon billions in revenue, they can afford to buy any verdict they want. And I think that's ultimately underlying this. And that, to me, is at the base of what this entire intellectual property regime is about. It's about people with incredible amounts of money buying the verdicts that they want. And this is precisely why the copyright um, uh, term of use can, c continues to get extended every time it comes up for expiry for, say, Walt Disney and, and Mickey Mouse. Every time Mickey Mouse is about to enter into the public domain, suddenly there's another 10 years added onto the copyright uh, laws so that uh, they can continue to copyright uh, that that visage. And uh, and it's just so blatant. It's so, so transparent that all it's about is really serving the interests of the, the giant mega corporations, it really doesn't have anything to do at this point with serving the interests of the individual artists or, or what have you that they claim to be protecting with these laws. And as one example of that in the music industry, where of course we've had all this fight over the past 15 years or so of people downloading music illegally on the internet and the Recording Industry Association of America trying to fight back against them and all of this battle that's been taking place, it's been pointed out, but very few people take note, that really only about um, one in 10,000 or so artists actually makes any money whatsoever out of that system. The vast majority of them actually never see a single royalty check from the current copyright regime. Interesting. All right, we'll be back after this three-minute break. A lot of people use that fair use. Can you get into trouble with it? That would be interesting to know. Or have people gotten in trouble with it? We'll be back. Three minutes. Stay tuned. Thank you for joining us, caring about your world, doing the next right and honorable thing. And I want to remind you all that uh, we will be getting the time challenger out this week as fast as we can. Do not call, do not call, do not call and say, where is mine? Because it's coming. That's all I'm going to tell you. It's coming this week. So just uh, please be patient. We're not going to be looking up any orders on Time Challenger. We were slammed. That stuff is amazing. It uh, feeds the mitochondria of the cell, and it is amazing. And we got so many orders that uh, we're just uh, kind of, uh, you know, pl that plus the weather. You know, UPS now can use the old, um, the streets are slick. Um, not that they use that, but, I mean, it's true. It's true. There are a lot of slick streets around after the uh, ice storm that we had. So just a word to the wise. Um, but please support the Power Mall. We need your support, want your support to stay on the air. That's how we do it, just simply by selling the best products that you can find anywhere. Call us at 877-817-9829, 877-817-9829, or go to thepowermall.com. We're talking with James Corbett today, The Corbett Report, two Ts, thecorbettreport.com. Uh, what a professional he is, and he sources everything, he searches out everything. In fact, we were talking about the traveler story just during the break on uh, no radiation coverage by traveler's insurance, and he's going to check out the source, so uh, we appreciate that very much. Getting back to intellectual property issue, to people who don't understand why that is so important, would you please tell us the implications of the Google case and literally why intellectual property is so important and why it's trying to be and why they're attempting and who is attempting to destroy it. I, it it's really 
difficult to to paint a picture of this for people who who don't see i think the the big picture that's that's in my head but um basically the, there are two different ways of approaching the 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 human productivity the entire economy and one is to create these kind of walled gardens around which there are there is intellectual property which is some sort of magic thing that's created out of nothing that somehow tells you that you can't put your fingers on a guitar in a certain way because that's been done before by someone else in a different place. It's it's a bizarre and totally um, arbitrary thing that's been decided through governments and courts and regulations and the like that, that really doesn't correspond to human experience. I can understand the idea of physical property being protected by, by, by a legal system because if you take my bicycle... I don't have a bicycle, it's gone, and uh, that's that's a bad thing. I understand that 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 concept. But when you talk about, for example, copying something that's digital in the first place, nothing is is taken from anyone. In fact, all you're doing is is really copying something. So it, it, it's it's very analogous to um, if you have a book and you you lend it to your friend, uh, there there's nothing that any publisher or whatever would, would try to come in between that relationship. But however, when it's done online in a digital form, um, there's there's a big brouhaha made about this. And I think getting getting away from just that, that, that issue in particular, because people tend to think, well, you know, the artists need to be paid for the work. And I, I totally agree with that. But I think uh, there are different uh, funding models that are arriving in the internet age that are completely 100% uh, about cutting out those corporate middlemen that act as the copyright negotiator, holder, patent keeper people, the, the guardians in the middle, and more about artists interacting directly with their audience. But I think it's more fundamental than that. And the place where the rubber meets the road in this entire debate is the 3D printing revolution. And again, for people out there in the audience who don't know what 3D printing is, I really urge them to take a look at this technology. It's actually not a new technology. It's been around for a couple of decades now, but there, because, ironically enough, because some of the patents surrounding this technology started to expire in the last few years, we've had um, be, uh, an entire revolution in 3D printing technology. So now there are a lot of desktop 3D printers um, that, that are available on the market for as little as a few hundred dollars. So the uh, the price is within a, a, an affordable price range for a lot of people, and a lot of people are starting to get into it. 3D printing is not like printing like print, printing ink on paper. It's the idea of printing an object, um, like, a, for example, an, an Asian lantern, uh, a set of cufflinks. Any, any physical object you can think of that's made of one type of material can be made on, on your desktop with a 3D printer, which basically takes a type of material and puts layer after layer after layer on top of each other until it forms a, a one solid 3D object. And because it does it in this fashion, basically you design it on your computer and then it prints it in this printer. Uh, it takes a few hours or what have you and you have the object. So you can create all sorts of things at home in, in your own uh, in your own uh, living room. I mean, it's it's a pretty amazing technology. And as the technology starts to get more more advanced and starts to be able to do more more uh, amazing things, it really does threaten to completely upend our entire idea of manufacturing. The idea that that we have to have these big in industrial manufacturing plants grouped in some area that are creating all of these products that are then shipped all the way around the world so that they'll end up in a store so that you are passing by and you might 
might happen to see one and, oh, I actually want that, so you go and buy it. That's the most inefficient way you could possibly imagine to create a system of a productive economy. Um, contrast that to the idea of people sharing designs for various objects online. You download the design, you print it off on your 3D printer, and you actually have the object in your hand. It's, a, it's just such an incredible change in the way that we approach the idea of production. And uh, we're getting to the point where this technology is so advanced, there are now people who are literally designing cars that you can download. And I'm not making this up. If you go wow. to osvehicle.com, you can download the blueprints for a car that you can manufacture yourself if you are so willing, or you can you can purchase a kit that they will send to you. And within 41 minutes is the record. They, they're able to construct this roadworthy chassis. It's obviously not... What? A, it, I, I'm not... <laughs> I'm not kidding you. It's obviously not the most beautiful car you've ever seen in your life, but it is roadworthy, it, it, and it does work. It is a car that you can literally download right now if you go to something like osvehicle.com. There are others doing it. This is the idea that we're talking about. People designing things collaboratively online, sharing them openly, no copyright, so that you can take it, you can modify it, put up the modification and share that with people. And through this process, literally developing things like downloadable cars, um, just things that are sound like total sci-fi fantasy that are actually happening right now. And that is the real revolution that I think is taking place as people start to realize what's possible. If we look beyond this copyright patent um, way of, of narrowing down our, our, our scopes and, and start to see the real productive possibilities of humanity collaborating with each other. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. All right. Why do we need to keep intellectual properties intellectual properties. I mean, why do they need to be kept separate and apart from the public domain? Well, I see, I don't think that intellectual property really exists. Um, I think that, that uh, property exists because I, I, I understand what that is and I can hold it in my hand. I think intellectual property is a concept that's been invented through the legal system that I don't think really exists in nature. Um, if you if you if you take it back down to the natural law level, I don't think there's a way in which we could imagine you know cavemen saying, "Oh, you can't grunt in that way because I I invented that grunt." I mean, it's a ridiculous concept, and I think because that false concept has been introduced through the legal system, we've we've grown up in it, we've been steeped in it, so we we really treat it as if it's something that that is that is true, that is real. I don't really think of it that way. I think that the the intellectual property quote, quote unquote really is. It is the collective property of humanity itself. And I know that's a pretty grandiose statement, but honestly, I don't think that there's a, there's a way that some someone in some boardroom on the other side of the world can tell me what what uh, what notes I can sing in what order or what have you. I think that's that's a total legal concept. So so really, I think public domain and, and intellectual property is a false dichotomy that's been invented by the court system. And I don't think that we should be limiting ourselves in that way. Because again, when we think of what can happen with the, the collaborative framework of open source collaboration, it's just so far beyond um, what's happening currently in the productive economy, that any any argument from from consequences of what will happen, oh, how will artists get paid if we if we scrap intellectual property? Um, I, I, for one, am living proof of, of this concept, because I put my work out completely 100% copyright Free. It's under a Creative Commons license so people can reuse it, republish it, remix it, use it however you want to, spread it out, copy it, uh, give it to people, um, uh, random strangers on the street. I encourage people to do that. And 
I, I rely literally for, for, for having a roof over my head and food on my, uh, on my table for the kindness of people out there who appreciate the work that I'm doing. So I am living proof that this is possible and that I think this is the model that will be the, the only model that I think will, will really be, have a chance of overtaking the current corporatocracy that's, that's been growing up around this intellectual property regime. Well, you mentioned creative commons license. That's not one I'm familiar with. Would you explain how that works? So creative commons is basically a kind of alternative copyright concept that's that's risen basically around internet culture. It's very common online with a lot of work like the work that I'm doing on CorbettReport.com. And there are different different flavors of it that have different terms. So, for example, I use Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 2.5 Generic License, which basically means you can use my work, you can share it, you can adapt it in any way you want. Um, But I appreciate if you give attribution and if you use it for non-commercial purposes. So if you don't actually use it to to try to sell my work as if it's your own or something like that. Um, But those are the only restrictions. And uh, there are lots of different examples like that different licenses whereby you agree when you when you download the the product or whatever you agree that yes okay i can share it i can adapt it but uh, if i share it i have to provide it under the same license so for example you can't um ad- adapt one of my works and then put it out uh, under a copyright license um the license doesn't allow for that so so it's just a different way of of putting this that isn't centered around that copyright idea that I I own this work and if you use any part of it without, I'm going to sit, take you to court or, or that type of idea. Um, it's just an alternative to that. And I think it's really important that we start understanding and, and, and using some of these uh, types of ideas, especially in this day and age where copyright has traditionally been fought out in court battles through the legal system, but it's even that is being eroded these days as, for example, anyone who's uploaded to YouTube will know, basically someone can come along and say that they own whatever, a song that's in your YouTube video or whatever it is. They don't have, really have to provide any proof of that, but YouTube will automatically put a copyright strike against your, your uh, account. And if you have three of these strikes, they can take your account down. Um, regardless of whether or not this is true or not. Now, you can appeal that through some YouTube appeal process, but this isn't a court process. This has nothing to do with the court system. So it's a really bizarre world we're entering into where all of this is being decided through some sort of opaque process that's decided on by some corporation in California that may or may not have anything to do with actual law as it exists. So I think to start to avoid that, we have to start exploring some of these other open source and creative commons and other ways to to imagine our our way around the intellectual property regime. I want to um, address the issue of Bitcoin since it's getting a lot of attention lately. And by the way, the Dow is down 31 points already today. It opened in the green, but it's now down. And that, along with a lot of other fluctuation within um, the uh, uh, Dow, I want to get to that. I mean, you know, the uh, Nikkei taking some pretty big uh, crashes too, or some pretty big uh, hits also. But um, I wanted to get to the um, situation with the um, Oklahoma the Bank of Oklahoma, we reported on earlier, is going to close for a uh, one-day, 24-hour, we-want-to-prepare-against-anything-that-might-happen uh, kind of day. I want you to address that, but let me open up the phone lines. To those of you who would like to talk to James, um, the phone number is 855 
800-242-6923. If you have a question or comment for James Corbett, give us a call. And uh, the issue of the Bank of Oklahoma, and then we'll de- deal with uh, Bitcoin if you don't mind. What might this mean? What might it mean? Because we don't know what it means. But what might it mean, James? Well, unfortunately, we've seen definitely times in the past where um, drills of things have gone live, as it were, and the the events that they were drilling for suddenly actually happened in real life. And we've seen various examples of that. Perhaps one of the most famous is one that uh, Peter Power was running on 7-7 in 2005. Um, he was saying it was a tabletop exercise that imagined bombs going off in the uh, London Underground. In what he said on TV that day were the exact same stations as it actually happened, and there's some dispute about that and and what type of drill it was. But but that's the at least the idea of this that that somehow these drills can actually be used as a way to to um, become a cover for the actual event happening. And uh, there's, as I say, there's a lot of examples of this happening. And of course, 9-11 is another example where we have to look at the all of the drills that were happening on that day. So that's that's a worrying thing. And of course, one of the, the, the things surrounding 9-11 was that in the weeks prior to 9-11 itself, there were the issues of the shutdowns at the World Trade Center, where apparently because of some upgrades and things that were happening on the site, they were shutting down the security systems for the weekend and things were just being policed by by guard dogs and the like um, of people entering and exiting the buildings during those weekends and all sorts of unauthorized access was taking place. So who knows what was being prepped in the weeks before 9-11. And so again, we have to have at least a, an understanding that these types of things can happen. But the unfortunate thing from our perspective is that we could hear a million of these stories of of this bank or this place or this mall or whatever closing for this or that reason or preparation or drills, and they won't go live. But it only takes the one, one out of a million that might go live for this to nevertheless be a very effective way of instituting some sort of false flag attack or scenario or who knows what, who knows who is planning, who knows what. So we have to have our our hackles raised and we have to be aware of these things. But as to their predictive value, again, it could be, we could see a million of these stories and and nothing will happen, but it only takes the one for something spectacular to happen. So true, so true. Let me go to uh, Jerry Peterman called in. Let's uh, go to Jerry Peterman. The phone lines are jammed, by the way, and uh, I do want to get to Bitcoin if we can. But Jerry, uh, uh, welcome this morning. You're on the line with um, uh, James Corbett. Go ahead, please. What's on your mind good today? Morning. Morning. Yeah, good morning, Joyce and uh, Mr. Corbett. I, I vehemently disagree with Mr. Corbett's assessment that the um, intellectual property is something that doesn't exist. You see, a lot of intellectual property is backed up by hard laboratory research, and that's my case with uh, cell phone patents. I've got a, a large number of cell phone patents worth several million dollars, and we, we spent over a million dollars worth of research in uh, at Southwest Research in San Antonio to get to the point where we could write these patents for this uh, asynchronous wireless and artificial intelligence uh, wireless material. And if, if that has no value, uh, I don't understand your logic. 
Okay, well, let's find out what his uh, response is. Go ahead, James. Well, here, here's my, my take on, on patents, which are obviously real things that are really engineered in the real world. So they're, they're slightly different than when we're talking about songs or something like that, which are just a collection of sounds. But when we're talking about these, these real objects that are invented in a laboratory through diligent research, and, and trust me, I'm, I don't knock the, the research that goes into it. But what happens, for example, if someone who doesn't know anything about the, the, uh, the material that you've you've discovered or that you've you've engineered goes into a locked room and doesn't know anything about your plans or hasn't seen them but is able to independently engineer the exact same thing as you does the patent apply to them okay stay right there jerry we'll be back after this break jerry has a number of patents i'd like to know how many he has uh, we'll be back three minute break stay tuned to the power hour 50 after the hour this is joyce riley with james corbett Thank you for joining us. Caring about your world. It's all about putting it together. And we have some of the best guests and some of the best listeners. Uh, Jerry Peterman happens to be a guest and a listener who's calling in today. Yes, he is time challenger Jerry. And uh, Jerry, just real quickly before we go back to um, um, to the response from, uh, uh, from our James Corbett today, um, just tell everybody to be patient. I told them to be patient and they weren't. So maybe you can tell them to be patient regarding time challenger. I think it's really important to be patient because the factory was blown away by the amount of orders that we we had. We thought it was going to be uh, 15 or 20 percent of of what we ended up with, and I mean, I'm I'm so extremely grateful to the uh, to the listeners and the customers of the Power Mall, but uh, we we are busting our behinds getting this done, and everything's coming this week. Uh, factories assured us they've gone into a high-speed production up in Wisconsin to get this done. And uh, yeah. we've ordered extra so that when we're completing this particular uh, a large amount, we'll still have a lot of inventory available. And this yeah, so everybody, everybody be patient. Absolutely. Everybody yeah, be patient. Absolutely. I thank you for your patience in advance. Um, going back to uh, uh, James, now, the, you know, he has a number of patents. In fact, uh, Jerry, how many patents do you have now or do you want to say? Yeah, I've got nine in the U.S., and the rest of them across the world adds up to about 17. Okay, so you have a financial investment in intellectual properties. Uh, It's about $6 million tied up in the corporation when we first uh, uh, went public back in 2000. And I bet you wish you had that $6 million right now, too. Of course. uh, no kidding. Um, Jerry, your response to what he, what, uh, I mean, uh, uh, James, your response to what Jerry says about uh, the intellectual property. Well, I would like to respond to, to James's question. He said, okay. what if a person goes into a room and comes up with something? Uh, it, 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 Mr. Mr. Gray had that kind of a problem showing up in the afternoon when Mr. Alexander Graham Bell showed up in the morning at the patent office. We have Bell telephones, not Gray telephones. Uh, it, it's it's a way to protect people who've worked very, very hard. Uh, a person can go in a room and come up with something that is identical to something out there, but the patent office relies, relies on you going and doing a patent research, a uh, patent search before you go out and waste your time to see if somebody else is out there. But that doesn't protect you from spending a lot of money going to the patent office and finding out somebody else did the same thing. 
And well, also can I just make a, a correction okay. on that point? Because it's not as cut and dried as, as you would think there. And unfortunately, there's a long legal kind of battle that's gone on about the question of reverse engineering. And its legality has has changed over, over the years. But if you go, for example, back to 1989 U.S. Supreme Court decision, Benito Boats, Inc. versus uh, Thundercraft Boats, Inc., um, they actually ruled, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that reverse engineering was an essential part of innovation. And it, as I say, it, it applies in different respects to different products at different times in le- legal history. So it is a changing concept. But there are times in what which reverse about? engineering a product is considered fair use. I didn't talk about reverse engineering. Well, that's what I'm talking about. Well, I'm not. You're talking about something where somebody goes in a room and creates something independently without knowing anything, and then perhaps they would like to sell it. They can't. If somebody else has gone out and spent a lot of money and created a product, and they didn't do the person in the room didn't do their due diligence to find out somebody else has already got that product patented, Sorry, Charlie, that's just the way it is. Let, let me give you an interesting example. It, it's kind of a silly example, but an interesting example. If people go to startpage.com right now, not Google, startpage.com, and type in open cola, you can get a recipe for a cola that people will say is exactly the same as the uh, the Coca-Cola recipe or the Pepsi-Cola recipe. Um, the companies in, in question deny that this is their, their secret patented recipe, but it is the, the uh, a close enough taste for most people's taste. And you can get an exact... Uh, recipe of how to make this and how to combine the ingredients, etc. You can make your own Coca-Cola or Pepsi-Cola at home, given this recipe. Okay, thank Should you. Thank you very much. i got to move on to the other callers. Thank you, Jerry, for the phone call. I get your point. Thank you very much. We'll be back after this one minute, ten second break. Stay tuned. Back to Power Hour. Thank you for joining us. Caring about your world, doing the next right and honorable thing. James Corbett is our guest today, and um, uh, we've got so many callers. I'm sorry I'm not going to get to everybody. Let's go to Mike in Tennessee. Mike in Tennessee, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. What's on your mind? Okay, Bill in Wyoming, you're on the air. Go ahead, please, Bill. Good morning, Joyce. Good morning. I would just like to point out that if one would bother to read the Constitution, they would realize that in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8, they actually say that the Constitution actually defines copyright and patent law. Right there in the Constitution, fans of that. I, I am familiar with that, but actually I'm a Canadian living in Japan, so I don't particularly care what the Constitution says. Also, I'm an adherent of Lysander Spooner, so I follow the Constitution of no authority. You are going to get me some emails now. Oh, my gosh, you don't care about the Constitution. Oh, I can see it coming. Um, so just real quickly, clarify your, your comment that you don't care about the Constitution. Well, uh, I'm not a signatory to the Constitution. In fact, no one alive today is, so I don't think it has power over anyone. But um, the the more important point, uh, I suppose, is that uh, natural law supersedes um, whatever Constitution was drafted up in a uh, Philadelphia room back in the late 1700s. And I'm certainly 100% sympathetic to Americans who want to go back to a more constitutional-style republic as they once were, because that would be infinitely better than the the absolute tyranny that uh, America has devolved into. But I follow the American tradition of, of thinkers like Lysander Spooner, and if people out there have not read the Constitution of No Authority, I really suggest they do so, as I think he does an excellent job of 
describing exactly what the Constitution is and how it's used as its own type of tyranny. Interesting. Uh, your response to that, uh, Bill? Okay, Bill hung up. All right, let's go to Jim in West Virginia. Jim, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Um, what's your question or comment today? It's comment. It's comment. My dad was a U.S. patent agent from the 50s to the 70s. He also worked for Carbide, world-class chemist. Carbide could put in, and Carbide had more patents than the other chemical company. They were the good guys. They could put an application in by 9. It'd be out the back door by 5. Over in Taiwan or some other place within our property laws, it would be in production on our shores. Justice Department wouldn't get rid of it. But it is a means by which the U.S. government sold technology. There were too many rumors, and he got close to this, too, of something being patented, and then all of a sudden it disappearing. It never went into production. I mean, it never was a patent, and the guy got suicided. You know, in other situations where they would patent something, they would put out a copy of it. They would uh, these uh, People would come out and get a copy of the patent and run off to a country and not produce it, and Justice Department wouldn't stop it. Union Carbide invented Dylon. They licensed it out to production to DuPont. They had reason to believe that DuPont produced about 10 times as much as they got paid for. The patent office decided against Carbide time after time. Monsanto versus Carbide. Infringement cases, anything. The U.S. Patent Office is totally corrupt. The idea is good. The administration is ridiculous. Monsanto can, can patent a life form. Oh, my God. They can patent my DNA. It is... Uh, I, I better shut up before I cuss. Okay, thank you very much for the phone call, Jim. Uh, James, your response to Jim in West Virginia. I, I hear him. I feel the pain. It is, it is to me sickening, absolutely sickening, that the Supreme Court has ruled that life itself can be patented. And if there's no more disgusting idea of this, this intellectual property taken to its sick conclusion, I don't, I don't know what is. So, of course, that gives rise to the entire ge- uh, biotech, genetically modified monstrosity uh, industry, which, of course, relies on this, this intellectual property idea for its own, its own fuel. And again, whatever you think of the validity of patents and copyrights and the like, it's always a question of selective enforcement, exactly as the caller outlines. Um, whoever has an in with the, the government can get their, their patents through, and whoever doesn't can have their patents stolen in a heartbeat. So uh, that's, that's the way so it always scary. works. That is so scary, given the fact that so many people like Jerry put their heart and soul in patents. That is really scary. Let's go to John in Tennessee. John, quickly, you're on the air with James Corbett. Go ahead, please. Uh, yes, Joyce. Uh, my question is, what is Mr. Corbett's opinion on chemtrails, and is he seeing them in the skies over Japan? Okay, are you seeing them in skies over Japan? Unfortunately so. I've watched the sky get painted over um, in a morning with uh, plane after plane passing over, a perfectly blue sky turning into a gray, soupy monstrosity. Yeah, so mess. it happens here too. All right. Thank you for your phone call. I uh, appreciate that, John. And sorry, Rick, in Pennsylvania. And thank you so much, James Corbett. We appreciate you on the Power Hour today. Thank you. Thank you.